you extroverts, I'm sorry. For you introverts, you're welcome. We're going to end this time and continue on with the service. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hosea. It's found in the Old Testament. It's one of the uh, prophetic books we find in Scripture. It's not always one of those books we know super well, and so no problem if you have to use the table of contents to find it. Again, no shame there. If you need a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you, or of course, if you have the Bible app on your phone or tablet, you can follow along that way. Uh, my name's Matt. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just so glad that you're with us this morning. Thanks for coming out and being a part of our church and our worship service today. Uh, every week that we're here together, we walk through a portion of Scripture because we really believe that there is a God and that that God has spoken to us and to the world, and we can grow to know Him by studying His Word and so we're in week two of our series through the book of Hosea. We kicked it off last week talking about adultery and prostitution and all kinds of crazy things. Um, so for a brief recap, in case you missed it, again, the book of Hosea is uh, from the prophet Hosea, whose ministry was in the second half of the 8th century B.C., so a long time ago. And if you're not familiar, uh, the role of a prophet was very simple, just to bring uh, the Word of God and a message from God to the people. And so a prophet would speak on behalf of God to the people of God with whatever God would want them to say. But we saw to start that Hosea's task is a little different than normal. And that God doesn't just have a word for him to share, but a job for him to do. And he tells him to go and get married, uh, but not just to anybody, to a woman named Gomer, who we learn is a, a promiscuous woman, uh, an adulterer. She uh, very likely is engaged in prostitution. And so not exactly the type of woman you would expect a prophet or a man of God, if you will, to marry. And yet, God tells him to do it. And we see that God wants this to happen because he wants to get a message through to the people, to communicate to his people in a very vivid, real-life way that his relationship with his people looks very much like Hosea's relationship with Gomer. Okay? God is a faithful, faithful spouse who loves his people, but his people have gone astray. His people, like an adulterous wife, have pursued other lovers, worshipped other gods, and broken the Lord's heart. And so we see in the book of Hosea how God responds. There's a quote that says, God made us in his image, and ever since we've been trying to return the favor. Maybe you've heard that quote before. And it gets at the idea that sometimes we try to make God in our image where we have all these assumptions and ideas about what God is like, and we project them out upon God, and we kind of create this picture of God that thinks kind of like us and behaves how we would behave. And the only problem with that is that often this image of God that we kind of conjure up in our minds is not actually accurate to who God actually is. And so... We all need to come to God's word, his revelation, where he reveals himself. God tells us what he is like. And so we all come to the table with these kind of false assumptions, 
false assumptions sometimes that need to be corrected. So we're jumping into Hosea to see this picture of the heart of God and what God is really like. And so as we prepare for that task, would you pray with me this morning again? Well, God, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, recognizing we are so dependent upon you for everything, Lord, but especially to understand your word. We need your help. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see and to hear the things that you have for us this morning. Pray that you would remove distractions, soften our hearts, allow us, Lord, to really grasp what you are trying to say this morning. We're grateful for this time. We thank you for it. Let's pray you'd bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, let's read the book of Hosea. I'm going to start in verse 2 of chapter 1. It says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. That was last week. Now verse 4. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter this time. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So, as the book of Hosea continues, you see that not only do Hosea and Gomer get married, but they start a family have some kiddos running around. And this marriage that raised some eyebrows at first, you know, the preacher and the prostitute getting together, maybe the community had a bit of a hard time with that, seemed a little strange, but maybe people are getting used to that idea. And now uh, the first child's coming along, Gomer's pregnant, and the church ladies throw her a rocking baby shower to get her all the stuff she needs. Everyone's excited, but we see that when the child arrives, there's actually this really hard word from God for the people. You notice that in verse 4. The Lord says to Hosea, call him, this son, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So he says, hey Hosea, I want you to name your first son Jezreel, which was the name of a valley in Israel. And it was actually a place where a lot of murder and sin took place and injustice, a place where kings and their families had been killed. A lot of bloodshed took place there. And so it's kind of an odd thing to name your firstborn son, right? 
This is the first of three children, and we see that each of the kids mentioned have a symbolic name that's intended to teach us something. And so God's kind of extending his metaphor, not just Hosea and Gomer, their marriage teaching us something, but now through these children that come, God wants a message to get through to his people. And so the first son is named Jezreel, and it's pointing to judgment, right? You see that in the text? I will punish the house of Jehu. Jehu, uh, his family dynasty was kind of the ruling dynasty of the time. Jeroboam II was the king of Israel in the days of Hosea, and he was fourth in the line from Jehu. And so this dynasty was ruling. And so God's saying, I'm going to bring judgment upon the current dynasty, upon those in power, upon the king of Israel. I'm even going to put an end, you see it says in verse 4, to his kingdom. And then verse 5, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now, if you're going out to war and a bow is your weapon and your bow is broken, what's going to happen? You're probably going to die, right? Like as if God was saying today, I'm going to break your tanks. I'm going to dismantle all of your weapons. And so when the bad guys show up, they're going to win and you're going to lose. You're going to die. I think that's a very harsh thing for God to say to his people, but it, it gets worse. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again, and this time gave birth to a daughter. Okay, little girl comes along. The Lord said to Hosea, I want you to call her lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should forgive at all, forgive them. God says, Gomer, want you, or excuse me, Hosea, Gomer, name this daughter Lo Ru Hama, which means not loved. Maybe your translation says uh, no compassion or no mercy. I mean, either way, it's pretty rough, like a pretty harsh thing to name a child. It wasn't like people back then, like this was on Israel's top 10 most popular baby names. You know, like number one was Sarah, number two for the year was. Esther is a very popular name. And number three, rounding out the top three, was not loved. People just were all about that name. Um, no, that's, that's not actually how it worked. Uh, God is doing something special here, trying to get a message through to his people. This name is symbolic. And doesn't verse 6 go on to tell us, I will no longer show love to Israel that I should forgive them. And then verse 7 says, I'll rescue Judah which is the southern kingdom, the kingdom that had been a bit more faithful to God, but the northern kingdom of Israel, no. I will not have compassion or mercy or love for them. Again, this is a, a harsh word of judgment. One more child, though, comes into the picture. As we continue, verse 8, after she had weaned Loruhamah, Gomer had another son. And then the Lord said, call him, this third child, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Once again, it's a symbolic name. God's trying to communicate a message to us, and this possibly is the most striking of all three that we've seen so far, where God says, you, Israel, are no longer my people, which if you were an Israelite, in this time, you would know 
the Scriptures in the Old Testament, and you would know God's promises in Genesis and Exodus and the Torah, and you would know that God said in Exodus that you, as the people of Israel, were His chosen people. And He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. That was a deep, distinct part of their identity. And now He's essentially reversing that, it seems, saying the exact opposite. You will not be my people. I am no longer your God. Wow. So we have Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, and Lo Ami come along. And so we think, what's the, what's the point? What does all of this mean? God's trying to say judgment is coming upon his people because of their sin. And we talked about this last week, if you were here, how the northern kingdom of Israel was being influenced by surrounding nations. And so they started to worship other gods. They said, yeah, we'll like read the Bible and all, but we'll also go to some pagan temples and worship all there and kind of hedge our bets just in case this God's more powerful than you, God. And so we're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to break your commands. We're going to become violent and arrogant and mistreat people and have hard hearts against you. And we're not really interested in knowing you any longer. And so God, in response says he's going to withdraw his blessings and his protection over the people. And he's going to actively bring judgment upon them. And we see in history, in the year 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria comes in and wipes them out. And the northern kingdom is destroyed and the people are taken away into exile. And so we see kind of in history the fulfillment of these words, kind of the hammer dropping on the nation of Israel, God's people. Man, okay, what do we do with that? You know, what does that mean for you and I today? What do we make of this? And the first thing I want us to, to draw from this is that sin has serious consequences. You see that in the text? Sin has serious consequences. And that might be a hard word for us to hear because sometimes we, to start, don't even have a fully formed idea of what sin is. You know that word, like it doesn't come up very often out in the world. So, so sin, sometimes our idea of what sin is is pretty limited. Or what we'll do is we'll, we'll narrow it. And so we'll say, well, sin, that's probably things like, you know, running a drug cartel and like robbing old ladies and cooking meth in your basement. So like, I guess if I'm not doing those things, like I'm good, you know. Um, but, and I hope you're not doing those things, but... Um, <laughs> But the, the picture that the Bible paints of sin is actually much broader, uh, much further reaching than just this like, limited, narrow view of it's the really bad things. Uh, if we look back to Genesis chapter 3, kind of where sin enters the story, where sin enters the picture, we see that it's, it's much deeper than just like breaking some arbitrary law. I mean, Adam and Eve do disobey God. And so we see that we cross lines we shouldn't. We do break God's commands, of course. But, but going on in that picture is also this distrust of God, where we, we doubt that God is good. And, and there's kind of this desire that wells up in the human heart to be independent, uh, to put ourselves in the place of God, right? Where we're the ones who get to determine what's right and wrong. And so we're not going to really do things God's way, and, you know, follow along in his word. We're just going to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves. Uh, and we really put ourselves in the place of God. 
to determine morals and how we ought to live and so on. Author John Stott put it this way. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. So at the root of sin is not just like some external thing that we do, some lines we cross. I mean, we, we, it is that. But at the heart of it is this desire to be independent, to make our own decisions, to not live life under God's rule, but to really set ourselves up as God, as the authority. And so that attitude influences, of course, our relationship with God, but also our relationship with ourselves and how we treat other people and how we decide to live. And so we see that sin has consequences and that it invokes God's displeasure, his anger, his wrath upon sin. So much so that we see that the people in the 8th century BC face death and judgment and exile and they're judged for their sin and separated from God. I know this is sometimes uncomfortable to talk about. It's a little quiet in here today. More quiet than normal. Uh, I recently read this study, uh, or this article posted about a biblical studies professor that had their class uh, recite the Lord's Prayer as uh, part of the curriculum each week, uh, which seems like that would be an appropriate thing to do in a Christian class. But uh, a, a woman came up to him afterwards and expressed that she was offended that that was a part of the class because the Lord's Prayer, in the version they used of Luke, uh, from the Gospel of Luke had the word sin in it. So that's like too negative. That's harmful. That's uh, offensive to, to talk about sin in that way. And the professor was kind of like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, it's, it's in the book. You know, like the, the word's there. You know, Jesus used it. Jesus talked about it. And so uh, we need to talk about it, right? And I don't bring that up to make light of it or to shame anybody, but just, just to point out that sometimes we, we have that like aversion to talking about sin. I mean, some of us are here today and you're like, that sounds like, isn't that something like the Puritans talked about? Like the people with the hats on the Mayflower and like it's really crusty religious language that just like legalistic, like hardcore weird churches, they're the ones that talk about sin. Um, and so I get it, like we, we want to talk about love and grace and so let's avoid the hard stuff, stick to the kind of the nice stuff. Um, and you know, if you've been here for a while, that we do talk about sin here pretty often. Um, and I, want, I just want you to know, I want to recognize that. I just want you to know that like, we don't do that because I'm interested in just like beating you down and wanting you to leave discouraged and with your head down. And I'm just like this angry preacher that like wants you to feel pain or something. That, that's not why we do it. We, we talk about it uh, first because it's in it's in the Bible, right? The Bible talks about it. And so we, as people of the book, should, we should talk about it. We should understand it. We should come to terms with it. Um, but also, we talk about it because we need to understand the bad news if we really want to appreciate the good news. Right? I mean, like, forgiveness and grace only make sense if there's something we need to be forgiven for. Right? <laughs> 
I mean, if you, were rescu- like, if you were drowning in a river, like picture you're drowning in a river, and someone comes along, and they pull you out of the river, and they rescue you, and they save your life, and you're so grateful and overjoyed, and you go to, to share that story with someone. You're like, someone, they saved me. They pulled me out of the river. It was amazing. Like, that story wouldn't make sense unless you explained that you were drowning in a river. Right? Like, you would have to talk about the bad situation that you were in in order for the rescue the saving work of your friend, to, to make any sense, right? You'd, you'd have to talk about that. And so, in order to understand the grace of God and appreciate the forgiveness of God, we have to talk about the, the bad situation that humanity really found itself in in the first place, with sin and separation from God and the serious consequences that come from that. So that's why we talk about it. But the good news is that Death and judgment and sin is not the last word in the book of Hosea or in the rest of the Bible. And so we see in this text specifically, watch how it continues in verse 10, right after these harsh words of judgment. Look at verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. So you see right after these words of judgment, harsh words come these incredible words of hope where God seems to reverse the consequences of sin, and he promises to actually renew his people and restore his relationship with them. You see it in verse 10. He says, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. That might not mean anything to a foreign ear, but when we know the Old Testament, we see that that was a promise that God made his people in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, more specifically, chapter 32, verse 12, God tells them he will bless them and multiply them. Help them prosper that they would be multiplied like the sand on the seashore. And so God is now repeating that promise, saying that promise still stands. My faithfulness is still here for my people. It has not changed. He promises to bless them. And he continues in the second half of verse 10. You see, it was said to them, you are not my people. But what does he say now they'll be called? Children of the living God. So the last word over you is not, not my people, but it's my children. Children of the living God who belong to him. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, say to your sister, my loved one. Remember the daughter in a few verses earlier whose name was not loved? It says, no, say to her, my loved one, my beloved. That's what your name will be. And so you see this reversal. And we see this throughout Hosea. And throughout the prophetic books in the Bible, like hard words of judgment that we are to take seriously, but also incredible promises of hope and restoration and God's grace and mercy. And we see that in our text today. An Old Testament professor, Daniel Carroll, he put it this way. He said, these words forcefully communicate that judgment has a purpose and is not Yahweh, not God's final goal. In the end, mercy overrides wrath, restoration follows discipline and purification. 
that judgment is not God's final purpose. And so you see that the problem for us should not be talking about sin, but when we only talk about sin. Right? If we just stay in verses 4 through 9 and just hammer on the judgment and the guilt and destruction and shame that you all should feel, and we just leave you there, that's not good Christian preaching. That's, that's not the message that I want to leave you with. And that's serious because sometimes we, just, we carry that around with us and we just stay there. Like some of you, like week in and week out, or maybe for, maybe for decades you've been going to church and like that, you just carry around with you this unending sense of God's displeasure over you. God's angry with you. God's not pleased with you. And there's, there's no sense of forgiveness and grace, no joy in your life with the Lord. No uh, responding to him out of his mercy, but you're just kind of in fear, like do things out of obligation. And so it's just bitter law and obedience without the new life and the grace of God. Sometimes people leave churches over that because they're just tired of it. Tired of being beat down and just only hearing the bad news. And so we, we have to see that, that, yes, forgiveness and grace without an understanding of sin is kind of empty and kind of hollow and doesn't mean a whole lot. But if we just talk about sin and judgment and devastation without talking about grace and mercy, then it just leaves people with, with death and law and devastation and never brings them to the good news. And so I don't want us to stay in verses 4 through 9. I want to see how God's love is for his people. God restores his people. There's hope for us doesn't leave us the way we are, but there's joy and good news over us. Another piece of this text that we really need to see that's maybe easy for us to misunderstand is that this is not just an indictment of Israel in the 8th century B.C. Like God was mad at them, they screwed up. And, and sometimes what we do is that we only see it as that. And so the lesson we take from it is some kind of like moralism, okay? Where we're just like, all right, so here's what the pastor's saying, like sin is bad, so don't do the bad stuff and do the good stuff. Like that's the Christian message. Don't do the bad, do the good. And so if you can like get your act right and just do the good enough, then God's going to be happy with you and that's what God wants for you. And there's truth there, but there's also more to the picture than just don't do the bad stuff, do the good stuff. Okay, because we see in this text an example one among many throughout the Bible about how we, humanity, continue to not get it right. This isn't just an isolated incident. We see even beginning with with Adam and Eve, their sin and failure and and exile, and then the the generation with Moses. God brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and then they sin, and there's judgment, and they wander in the desert for 40 years, and then now here in the 8th century B.C., People in Hosea's day, they've turned from God, and so God brings judgment and then a promise of hope. And then even people in Jesus' day, like they didn't understand what God was doing. The religious leaders at the time, they didn't get it. And so we just see like over and over and over again, the the overarching uh, picture that Scripture paints is that we continue to not get it. And we can't clean our act up. And so, so please... Please don't leave this morning just with, a, with more law on you where it's just don't do the bad stuff, do the good stuff. Like that's what Christianity is about, just good morals and principles and just do the good stuff, don't do the bad stuff. That's what God wants from us. And again, 
truth there in terms of God calls us to obedience, but the point of passages like this is to help us see that we continue to fail and that on our own, we're not just going to go out and get it right this time. Like, if we just, like, learn the rules a little bit better and, like, commit a little bit more, then we're going to go out and we'll get it right this time and we'll, like, fix the world. No. That, that's, that's, that's not what the Bible's trying to tell us. The Bible is trying to show us that, no, we need God to do something because we keep messing it up. And so we need God to break this cycle. We need God to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. We need God to to fix this. And so if we can get that and understand that that's what the Bible is trying to tell us, then we'll, we'll really understand what its whole message is about. We need to be rescued. And it prepares us then to see Jesus, to see Jesus as our rescuer, as a savior that we needed saving in the first place. And so Hosea chapter 1 points us forward to Jesus. You see verse 11 talks about how the people of God will be united under one leader. There will be one king, one Messiah, one savior who will come and lead God's people Hosea says there will be a day when you will be called children of the living God. And then John chapter 1 tells us that through Jesus, we can be adopted into God's family and become his children. And so we see in the story of Scripture that Jesus comes and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lives the obedient life that we could not live. He dies the death that we deserved. He bore the consequences of sin and judgment and God's wrath for sin so that we could be forgiven and freed and brought back into relationship with God that we can know him both now and forever. But there's more, right? There's more. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rose again. He's alive. And so then through his life and his power and our faith in him, we're united to him and then enabled to live this new life. Then with his spirit and his presence in us, we're able, transformed, changed, made new so that we can obey, so that we can live differently. So we're not going out in our own strength to try and fix things, but we're going out in the strength and the power of God to live new lives as his people. And so not only in Christ. Do we not have to fear judgment and condemnation? But in Christ, we're empowered and enabled by his presence in our lives to live how he's called us to live. And so I I hope that we can see that from this text. And it's important to know these things, but I also don't want to just leave you with like some abstract theological concepts from the 8th century BC that feel kind of disconnected from your life. Because the point of scripture is not just to leave us with that, but to lead us to changing how we live and to responding in the right way to God. That's the point of this. And so, how should we respond? You know, historians have looked back in history at moments of revival. You know, the term revival, where the Holy Spirit seems to just 
break out in these powerful new ways and people in mass come to faith in Christ and there's like this restored spiritual vitality in certain communities. You can look back to like the 17th century and the, the Great Awakening or the 18th century and the Second Great Awakening or maybe some more modern manifestations of this where it just seems like God's doing something powerful and new and people by the thousands are coming to faith and being sent out as missionaries all over the world. And sometimes we see that and we wonder, man, how, how did that happen? Like, what led to that? Because sometimes we kind of long for some, some spiritual breakthrough in our lives, right? Some growth, some transformation. Sometimes we feel a little stuck, and so we see that, and we're like, wow, God was doing some incredible things. How can I, how can I maybe see that in our life or in our day? Church historians will look at these situations, and they'll, they'll notice that there are three trends, three common components that are a part of these revivals, if you will. And the first one is a commitment to prayer. The second one is a commitment to the gospel message. And the third one is a radical conviction of sin. A radical conviction of sin that leads to confession and repentance. See, we can't schedule revival, like pick a date on the calendar. Like This is when revival is going to happen. Um, we can't determine how and when God is going to move, but we do see in Scripture that there are times where our sin and our continued, unconfessed, uh, unrepentant sin kind of gets in the way of what God wants to do in our lives, kind of like we kink a hose and kind of cut off the flow in, in some way to the way God wants to bless us and grow us and, and teach us. And so we need to seriously consider, are there things that are taking place in our lives that we haven't confessed that are kind of preventing God from doing more in our lives? Are there changes we need to make? Even if we're believers and we don't have to fear condemnation or judgment because of the work of Christ, which is great news, we still can kind of hinder our relationship with God by our sin if we don't confess it and seek to repent and move away from it. And so this morning, I don't want to just ask you to nod along to these spiritual concepts. We get it, Matt. There's bad news, sin. There's good news. Great, thanks. And then we go about our week. I want to invite you to respond and to really think about what this means for your life and consider your own heart, as we all should. Think about, Lord, is there something that I need to confess? Is there sin in my life? Maybe as we were talking about sin in those first few verses of chapter 1, like God was... Pointing something out in your heart. Kind of trying to bring something to your attention. Maybe there's, there's something in your life that, that you've been hiding, that other people don't know about. A struggle that you have, a character flaw that you've been ignoring, maybe addictions in your life to pornography or alcohol or, or something else. Maybe there's, there's, there's bitterness in your heart that you're just holding on to against someone else, someone who's wronged you, maybe even for years. There's been unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe there's disobedience in your life, like you feel God's really called you to something, but you're kind of running the opposite direction. If so, friends, I want you to know there's freedom in confession. There's freedom in bringing that to the Lord and being healed and responding to him in a right way. Confession is where we, we acknowledge before God our sin. We turn from it and say, Lord, I'm going to give this over to you. And I want to walk with you in the right way. 
But confession is not only something we do before God. Often the scriptures call us to confess our sins to one another. So I'm going to ask you to go one step further if that's something that you are needing to do. I encourage you not only to acknowledge it before God, but take that and confess that to someone else in your life, in our church, someone you trust, someone that you can bring this to the light to so that it doesn't just stay in the dark where no one else knows about it, but you can tell a trusted person in your life, hey, could you pray for me? I need to confess this. Maybe you need to reconcile with someone, someone who's wronged you, someone that you have wronged, and seek forgiveness and restore that relationship. God wants to do incredible things in us and through us, but sometimes we are unwilling to respond to him, unwilling to turn to him and allow him to come and change us. And so, friends, I encourage you to take that step today. And if you'd like to talk with me or Pastor Lee, we would love to hear from you. We would love to to talk with you about what that would look like to really turn to Jesus in your life. So friends, don't let the day go by without taking that step. God's really put it on your heart. We see that sin has serious consequences, but the good news is that God is a serious redeemer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which at times is hard for us to digest. I'm sure there are even more questions that this text raised this morning. Just pray that you would lead us, help us to understand, help us to return to you in the areas we need to, to confess our sin, to honor you in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you did what we could not do. You've saved us, you've brought forgiveness of sins, and you offer new life in you for whoever would trust in you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.